we have an idea of how the system looks um, in our heads and how it works, but is that actually how it works? And most of the time it's not because it's really hard to mentally model. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, President and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Kelly Shortridge, and she is somebody very special to this show. She was the very first guest, as you may remember, on our very first episode where we talked about behavioral economics and cybersecurity. I brought Kelly on because she's super smart, and I wanted to talk about some really cool, smart topic to kick us off, so behavioral economics it was. Flash forward to today, Kelly is a senior principal in Fastly's office of the CTO, but more importantly, she has written a very smart book. Go figure. Smart Kelly, smart book. See how these things connect? She uh, wrote a book called Security Chaos Engineering, Sustaining Resilience in Software and Systems. It's on the O'Reilly label, and it is, um, it is exactly what you'd expect from Kelly. It's a heck of a book. So uh, without further ado, Kelly, thank you so much for coming back to the ranch. I am so honored to be on another time, and still it's a highlight, I feel like, that I got to be the very first guest. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. You are more than welcome and more than welcome now as well. So this book, I've been reading it for the last few days. Um, wow. Like I've got a lot to ingest and learn here. I've been a CTO and um, I've been a developer way back when. I never talk about that, but I was a developer back in the Stone Age. Um, this book is is overwhelming and, and powerful and challenging all kinds of precepts that I've held about how software should be generated and created and sustained and maintained. So I guess we'll start with my very first question is, you know, who do you think should read this book? Who's your target audience? I tried to do something very clever and also something that's incredibly challenging, which is to teach software engineering folks, both, like you said, developers, as well as software engineering leaders about security and obviously resilience to attack. But I also wanted to teach software people, or security people about software engineering because I found a lot of people in the security community don't always understand, especially the more modern innovations that we see in software engineering um, and modern infrastructure. So I'm trying to bridge both communities without boring either one. And even for the foremost experts on either side, I'm trying to offer new ways about thinking about problems or new ways of applying things that you know towards the resilience problem. What a brilliant bridge to try to build there. I, you know, I haven't finished the book, but from what I've seen so far, you are, you are on the path. I think it's going to be a bridge people can walk over. Um, amazing stuff. It's, it's long overdue. I've been a CISO slash CTO at one role, you know, one company I was doing both and, and the conflicts and tensions within my own brain, even, uh, that's a whole show in its own right. Like it's, it's really tough to, to try to meet the goals of CISO and meet the goals of CTO in the same day at the same time with the same technology sets. And here you are sort of saying it's doable, um, which I think is, is fantastic. So, what I thought we could do for our listeners, you've got nine chapters in your book, um, and I thought that we could maybe do kind of a brief review of what each chapter is, and I'll, I'll kind of prompt you with, here's the title, what's the thing? But before we do that, you had an assistant, or how do you want to phrase it? You had someone come and help you with the book who did some case studies. Uh, that was Aaron Reinhardt. He couldn't be with us. You want to briefly talk about his role? Sure. So Aaron Reinhardt is really a pioneer um, in with security chaos experimentation. So when he was at United Health Group, he created a tool or a project called Chaos Slinger, which was open source, no longer maintained, but was huge for the community. 
Um, and he really pioneered how we can use chaos experimentation and inject these adverse scenarios to learn things about our systems that are relevant for security, um, which is obviously very important. So he has really been a heart of the community and he knows so many people, including people at Fortune 500s that are doing security chaos experimentation in practice. So he wrote a case study, also helped collect these fantastic case studies that are from Cap One, Accenture, Verizon, Open Door, Cardinal Health, uh, so many big companies as well as some startups that are doing this stuff in practice. So he's really been able to cultivate and also nurture um, the kind of application of chaos experimentation on the security side, which is huge. Cool. And he brought a bunch of those case studies to uh, Chapter 9, which we'll get to towards the end. Correct. Uh, yes. That's fantastic. Aaron, thank you so much for your contribution. Sorry you couldn't be here. Uh, but Kelly, let's dive in. So Chapter 1, uh, Resilience in Software and Systems. This is sort of laying the foundation of what resilience is. How did you go about this? What's your, what's your kind of highlights and keynotes for this, uh, for this chapter? Oh, wow. Uh, what a great question. So I will say I put a ton of thought into the chapter summaries at the end. So if you ever want the TLDR to sound smart at cocktail parties, read all the bullets at the end of each chapter. So with this chapter, one thing I really wanted to establish was that our goal really should be resilience and not this kind of abstract, very vague notion oftentimes of, you know, securing systems. Like what does it mean? What does a secure system actually mean? Resilience, in contrast, means the ability to um, respond and recover from failure with grace, as well as adapt to evolving conditions. It really recognizes that change, I like to say, change is the language of the universe. Just any scientific discipline, everything's about change, right? And we have to embrace that. So if we can also change quickly, if we can adapt, if we can be nimble, then we can actually make progress against attackers. Because guess what attackers do? They change all the time, right? That's that's the common wisdom. So why can't we be fast and ever-evolving too, right? So it, we really dig into what is resilience, even what is just a complex system, because it's incredibly important. I think we take it for granted a lot, especially on the security side, that what we're dealing with is a lot of different interactions between components. We can't just hope to secure one component and call it a day. We really have to think about how they work as the symphony um, and make sure that that symphony sounds in tune, right? That's what really matters. And one thing that I would love the opportunity to talk about a little bit is how powerful imitation actually is as a strategy across life. It's how humans learn. Um, it's even how other species learn. I think we don't often do it in security. And so another thing I really try to draw in the chapter is how can we imitate other disciplines, other complex systems disciplines who have been through this journey, who have embraced resilience and seen better outcomes, whether that's aerospace, healthcare, urban water systems, you know, ecology and climate science. Um, there's so many different domains we can draw from. And I do throughout the whole book, but really in chapter one is when we um, look at these other domains to see what can we learn? What can we draw on? What can we, you know, imitate to make this software problem better? I like that. And, and that segues neatly into chapter two, which is systems-oriented security. This idea that, okay, yes. complex systems, we have them, we know them, we love them, let's make them resilient. And now... Let's, let's base the security philosophy off that systems-oriented approach. Yeah, I tried to be pragmatic. Uh, I would love everyone to read the book end-to-end, -end, but I also recognize that sometimes people are short on time. So with chapter two, I really wanted to get into, okay, if you only read these two chapters, what can you start doing today that will actually help and get you started with resilience? So systems-oriented thinking, we definitely talk about that, why it's so important 
for security, because again, we can't just secure individual components. One thing we go into quite in depth is the idea of the E&E assessment, which is for evaluation and experimentation. So you have to start out with understanding um, basically how your system works, how it, how data flows through the system, how those interactions look, and then you can actually conduct experiments, what other domains call resilient stress tests, but chaos experimentation existed. If I could go have a time machine, I would absolutely change it, but here we are. So it's chaos experimentation, but that is really um, where you start to get a picture of how your system behaves in reality. So one thing we talk about is these mental models that we have. We have an idea of how the system looks um, in our heads and how it works, but is that actually how it works? And most of the time it's not because it's really hard to mentally model. So really with kind of this assessment approach is you document your assumptions about how the system works and then you experiment to verify and update those assumptions. So pretty straightforward. Then the rest of the chapter really contrasts what I call status quo security with what we're talking about, the systems-oriented security, this more like resilience, uh, an approach that's aligned to resilience, obviously what we call the discipline of security chaos engineering. And so looking at things like um, fail safe versus safe to fail. Uh, those different mindsets, thinking about what is security theater, which I think we do a lot of. I've talked before about security obstructionism. For anyone who's read that blog post, yeah, that's a lot of security theater where we're just doing the work to say we did the work. And I know, I know you're also all about, you know, how can we achieve real outcomes? Oh, no, that's no, no. Exactly I'm just checking boxes. That's, that's it. Just checking boxes. That's, yeah. that's my jam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely how you avoid an existential crisis. Just be a box checker. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. That's awesome. So, you know, it, it it called to mind for me some of the tenets we had from old school security thinking kind of it's almost like we're not having to abandon the old ways. We're almost having to just sort of blow them up a little. In other words, you take this very systemic systems oriented approach and you talk about how the whole system, you know, we're trying to develop a model of it that's probably halfway inaccurate and we don't know what all. And so let's start throwing chaotic inputs and outputs and, you know, shifting things. To my mind, it's just an extension and a, and a more strategic implementation of the tactical things we already do today, like fuzzing, you know, like what happens if I insert way too many digits? What happens if I insert negative digits? You know, like we attack one form field already today with, in my mind, the spirit of chaos security engineering. You know what I'm saying? And and similarly, threat modeling, right? It's the same sort of exercise. Like, well, does that thing talk to that thing? Oh, then that's an interface. Let's note that down as an interface. Does does this thing allow this thing to come? Oh, then there's a good, there's a door. You know, and to me, it's almost sort of blowing up some of those precepts from those two tool sets and, and getting strategic with them. I agree with that. It's formalizing them a bit more. Um, one thing we talk about is how attackers will attack your, this will always be true assumptions, and that's really important to challenge. Um, I think a key thing that we do try to draw on is also, again, what can we learn from obviously other disciplines and software engineering? Um, and the key thing is that, so I'm a big fan of fuzzing. Um, it's often difficult to implement in practice, but Again, that can sometimes be a very component focus and just focusing on one input. So the key thing with chaos experimentation or resilient stress testing more generally um, is thinking about like a uh, the financial stress test the Federal Reserve conducts. It's not necessarily just put in one input. It's very much looking like, okay, in this adverse scenario, how does it behave end to head? Like how does the bank actually look? And a key thing that I think is so overlooked that chaos experimentation draws on is how does the socio-element of our socio-technical systems behave? Because who gives a boo-hoo if, uh, if something is detected if humans can't do anything about it, right? You can have everything mapped to the MITRE attack framework, as we talked about, but if the incident responders 
don't actually know what to do with that information, then it's not actually helpful. So it's very much looking to make sure, you know, both how how this technical part of the system behaves under this adversity, but also how do the humans behave? And is it as you intend as well? All right. People, process, and technology all react and all shift and juke and, and, and maybe don't shift and don't juke uh, when the bad thing happens, right? So that's uh, it's, it's comprehensive in scope. That's what I like about it. It's a very strategic perspective. It's bigger level thinking than what we do in a lot of ways. Like I, I drew the metaphor to the fuzzing and, and, and the threat modeling because that's the spirit of it, but you've got to go big. And, and it's got to be inclusive of the whole enchilada. So chapter three and chapter four, you've got architecting and designing followed by building and delivering. So this is kind of, this is the crux of it right here to me. Um, kind of how do you, how do you steer folks through? Yeah. So really chapters three, four, and I would include five and six. I ref- view that as each phase of the software delivery life cycle. So it's really supposed to be a reference guide where you can actually pull it out in your day to day and be inspired. So chapter three, um, architecting and designing, that one uh, is uh, really about those mental models I talked about is when you're conceiving the system design, um, you're developing a mental model of how you want the system to behave, how you think the system will behave. And so there's a lot we need to be careful of. So we have the concept of the effort investment portfolio, which you can see my finance background seeping through. Um, which is basically that we have a finite amount of what I call effort capital, effort capital, and we have to be really careful about how we spend it, how we invest it, because we want the best return possible. And there are a lot of things we can do during this phase that can um, ensure that we respond more gracefully to failure and importantly, avoid what I call the danger zone, um, which I probably just earwormed a lot of people with the song just now. But the danger zone that basically arises, and I'll try to keep this super brief, um, when you have both tight coupling, when components are very influential with each other, like there's a lot of causality between the interactions, you have that tight coupling, as well as interactive complexity, which is basically you do have a lot of components interacting with each other in often baffling ways. So we draw on other disciplines, like I mentioned, as well as modern software engineering practices to have these opportunities to make the interactions more linear to more loosely couple we think about things like isolation, standardizing raw materials. You know, we want to avoid the lead that is C code, for instance. So we explore a lot of ground in that chapter just for how we can set up the system for success during this phase. Chapter four is a beast. It is by far the biggest chapter. Uh, I will admit, only on your show, I will admit that part of it was because I often hear from people like, okay, but this can't be done in practice, bro. Like, it's totally impossible. Real businesses can't do this. And I was like, that is false. So there are so many opportunities in this chapter precisely as a counter. I can now point to the book and be like, well, have you tried all of these things? So this chapter follows what I call the resilience potion recipe, which was introduced in chapter one. Basically, it has different opportunities for how we can better define the system's critical functions, how um, we can expand the system's safety boundaries, the the thresholds where it tips into failure, um, where we can make interactions more linear, at least observe those interactions across space-time, how we can learn um, and make sure that we're open to learning as well as willing to change. So there's everything, again, from like memory safety to type systems, which a lot of security people aren't necessarily as familiar with, but great opportunity to preserve possibilities for refactoring. Uh, Again, we have 
things like choosing boring technology, which uh, we can imitate attackers with that as well. There's so much in there. I could talk about this for, I feel like, a year or at least at least a good hour. But I'll say that this is probably the most packed full of practical wisdom. So, uh, And it very much applies to development and delivery once you have, you know, um, some sort of code you want to deliver into production. I love that you've got a chapter focused on the naysayers. I, um, I I did a digital fight club thing just a couple of weeks ago on zero trust. And the naysayer argument was it's not viable, it's not doable in the real world, and it's that same argument you're facing. And I was like, uh-huh, and gave examples and, you know, got into it. I won my fight. Um, but it's that same principle. I, I really think that some of these higher-level precepts and, and and concepts both that – have been coming down the pike, you know, naysayers are the bane of our existence in this industry. They really are. And I think it's super important whenever a new idea comes along to demonstrate that value, demonstrate the practical applicability, demonstrate, hey, look, here's a case study. It's been done. You know, people are going to interpret it different ways, right? Just like, you know, security chaos engineering, here it is on the table, is going to get interpreted different ways by different people, just like DevOps is, just like Zero Trust is, right? Like, I was challenging a, a group of friends a little while back, like DevOps, is CICD integral to the definition? Is infrastructure as code integral to the definition? Is, you know, staging prod dev, you know, like, like are these integral? And everyone's going to give you slightly different answers, and yet we all kind of know what DevOps is and we all kind of do it, right? And I want to see security chaos engineering. I want to see it get to that same point. So it's invaluable that your chapter four is just bam, 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 working examples. I think that's, I think that's phenomenal. I think it's going to help the cause tremendously. Let's pause right there real quick for a word from our sponsor. Do you want to make cloud security risks a no-brainer and remove friction between your security and dev teams? Well, Daz takes the pain out of the cloud remediation process using automation and intelligence to discover, reduce, and fix security issues. Lightning fast. Daz prioritizes alerts, shrinks backlog to actionable root causes, and improves mean time to remediation from weeks to hours. And best of all, keeps your developers focused on what they love doing most, coding. Visit daz.io slash demo and see for yourself. That's D-A-Z-Z dot I-O slash demo. Definitely. And one thing I actually imitated DevOps a bit, um, I love how Dr. Forsgren defines it as a socio-technical transformation because that's exactly what it is. It's less about the technologies, specific tools that you purchase. It's much more about the practices that you adopt. And it's the same thing with security chaos engineering for sure. Um, one thing I think um, that you mentioned, I think it's it's valid to be scared of some of what we talk about, just like some people were scared of DevOps. It's because it represents maybe we need new knowledge. We need new skills as security yeah. people. Um, let me say that again, given the cat. Uh, maybe we need new knowledge. We need new skills as security people, and that can be scary. Maybe you don't understand all this newfangled modern software stuff. That's part of why I wrote the book the way I did, so you can understand it better. Clearly, my cat agrees. Yeah, the cat. Hey, you're so fine. It's really we, about we've that. never had a meow on this show yet. Over a hundred episodes, Perfect. we've only ever had barks. They're the they're the first meows. We're gonna let it pass. Um, Excellent. I'm well, a big the mascot cat fan, of security so chaos engineering is Chaos Kitty, so it fits. Chaos Kitties. There you go. It it perfectly fits. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to me. You know. One of the tenets on this show, one of the mantras that comes up repeatedly in almost every context is most of it's a cultural battle. And, and that's for any value of it, right? I mean, we talk about every security facet and sub-facet on this show that exists. And at the end of the day, the conclusion is almost always, yeah, it's more of a cultural battle than anything. So embracing that awareness, speaking to that problem, like this is, this is huge. 
Now, you said chapters 3, 4, 5, 6 were kind of a lump sum. The reason I lumped 3 and 4 together and skipped 5 is because 5 is um, near and dear to my heart. Uh, We talked about the zero trust argument, right? For me personally, one of the intrinsics for a zero trust definition is the perpetual monitoring. You can do all the things. You can be suspicious of all the things. You can get ultra paranoid about your implementations of Auth N, Auth Z, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, identities are getting through and doing stuff with data or doing stuff with assets, period, end of discussion, it's happening. And if you are not constantly monitoring to make sure that that's really the one doing the thing that they're really supposed to do with what's really the thing they're supposed to be touching, you're missing zero trust in my mind. It's that perpetuity function, right? So, so how about for you for security chaos engineering? I'm assuming operating and observing is kind of that same uh, that same principle, right? It's definitely about sense making um, and how we can again observe our systems as they behave in reality, and importantly, feed that back into how we design things. Um, I'll spoil chapter six a little bit in that we don't want to point fingers at humans. Generally, it's not the human that's at fault. Um, so this is really about how can we collect again that. That data, like you said, observe how the system is behaving to make sense of it, to understand our systems better. A key thing in this chapter, you mentioned culture, that I think is an overlooked opportunity, is the significant overlap of SRE and security, especially in their goals. So I have an entire table just outlining, like, here are the goals, and here's exactly how they overlap, and here are some of the key things that you need to keep in mind, because I think there's a huge opportunity to combine forces. In so many organizations, you know, we have a lot of budget cuts right now. It's the, you know, tough macroeconomic conditions. Well, guess what? Uh, If you combine forces on this front, you can actually use a lot of the same tooling for observability and the systems. You're looking at it maybe for attacks. They're looking at it for looking at faults and performance anomalies, right? There's just so much common ground, and yet there's so much animosity, and it's so frustrating. Yeah, so this yeah. is trying to counter the, that. The fence is still there, and the rocks are still being thrown over it, right? Um, and, and this is why, for me, I, I abandoned DevSecOps as a term many moons ago because I, I want DevOps to simply speak to intrinsically the security that should already be there, right? Like, to your point, all these developers, they're already doing so much security stuff, whether they realize it or not. And all these security folks they better at least be aligned with the development because otherwise they're missing the bus and it's not a threat to them. It's just a cool new toy to play with. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, why are security people, security people? Cause they're tinkerers. Cause they're hackers. Cause they, they, they want to push the limits of a system. Boy, what a cool system to play with DevOps, like, like embrace it, see it as a cool thing and find out how security oriented these folks already are. It's amazing to me, a strong DevOps shop. One of my clients, the CTO, like every conversation we have, we're in lockstep on security. It's just, it's, and, and, and he's running 90 miles an hour and I'm running 90 miles an hour. And every time we check in, we're synchronized and you can get there. It's doable folks. It is absolutely doable. Absolutely. And I think one thing that you said, like that curiosity, um, that curious mindset is so much better than that kind of like fear or empire building mindset. And the chapter also ends with a whole list of different system signals that your SREs are definitely collecting, right? But I map it to some of the stuff in the MITRE attack framework because it's absolutely applicable too. And again, it's often overlooked. We look at, you know, all of the, you know, vendor-based um, signals, but there's a lot of just kind of basic system signals, you know, like heartbeats, 
you know, like accept Q depth, like back to what I consider the real basics when you think about just software systems. Um, and that can be really beneficial to security too. So I love the idea of CTO, CISO being in lockstep. Yep. That's the dream. That's that's the vision. That's the dream. That's where we're all trying to get to. I, at least I hope that's where we're all trying to get to. So chapter seven, platform resilience engineering. I have not cracked that one yet. I love the title chapter though. Six. Walk me through it. Oh, chapter six. We skipped chapter six, didn't we? My bad. You referenced it briefly. Uh, this is the responding and recovering. You, you mentioned the people aspects of it, the not blaming humans, but what else is there to responding and recovering? There's a lot. I don't go into the finer details of how to um, respond to specific incidents because, again, that's so context dependent. I do talk a bit about how um, kind of healthy response looks and including this idea that maybe we can conduct ri rituals as a letting go exercise. If you've seen The Northman, I love that movie, came out last year. They like before a battle, I think it's before, it's either before or after a battle, they get on all fours at night and they howl at the moon. And I just love that as a like letting go and a way to bond. And it's, it's true. Like when we think about incidents, our nervous systems are firing in a real way, even if it's not a physical threat. And so having some sort of cathartic ritual that's collective, like can be really helpful. Um, and Certainly when you combine it with chaos experimentation, you start building that muscle memory and you start building more comfort with being able to recover from these things. But most of the chapter really focuses on the idea of um, blameless incident reviews because that's a huge part of recovery because it's how do we learn from incidents? They're huge learning opportunities. Let's not waste it. And we absolutely waste it when we point fingers and we say, oh, this human was dumb or oh, they shouldn't have clicked on this. It's like, well, guess what? The marketing person clicks on like a thousand things a day and the one time that year, you know, in 365,000, whatever it is, like links clicked that one, how are they stupid? They're just doing their job. And we can always look into the factors that we currently overlook today, um, which is like system design and processes. And I especially draw on healthcare here because there's been a revolution in the past decade in healthcare. They have rejected root cause analysis because they realize there are a bunch of contributing factors. And if you go to the root cause, it's like, oh, well, someone made a mistake. They didn't follow the checklist. Does that tell you much? Maybe the checklist is poorly designed. Maybe the tool placement was poorly designed or like a bottle was confusingly labeled. Um, so we look at a lot of examples from that domain just because there's so much we can learn about how to move away from this very unhelpful status quo today so we can actually start learning constructively from incidents rather than just like scapegoating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the very last step for any good incident response process for any good tabletop exercise is that lessons learned piece. And to me, to your point, it's never a failing of humans. It's a failing of process. Humans are going to human all over their humanness, humanly in a humanly way, in a human humanly way, right? It's just going to be as human as it can human. It's a process defining what they are allowed to do and not allowed to do, setting the guardrails to feed them the right information in the right way, to extract the right information in the right way. That's where the failing is. It's always in process. It's not so-and-so clicked a link. It's, hey, we've built a process that allows these thousands of links through, which means some tiny percentage of them will, in fact, be the bad thing. Let's revisit our process. I would argue it's also often designed because the question is, why does clicking on a link cause a problem? Yes. Like, sure, they can click on the link, but maybe it shouldn't cause a problem in the first place. Right. So this very much leads us into Chapter 7, so I'll let you introduce it so I don't spoil it. All right, her. so Chapter 7 uh, platform resilience engineering. And this is the one I haven't cracked open yet that I really want to hear about. Yes. So this is, this is a little spicy. Um, it is basically proposing that what we currently consider a cybersecurity team could maybe look more like a platform engineering team. 
If you aren't familiar with platform engineering to the readers, I do define it in the book because it's relatively new. I draw a lot on Camille Fournier's excellent work. She's a pioneer of the discipline. But in essence, as we treat kind of internal engineering problems more like products, and in the security context, it means we treat security like a product. It has users. Those users have problems to solve, and we can build solutions that help them solve those problems. It means that we are no longer, again, like the checkbox people who just prescribe things and don't implement them. No, it means we build things like paved roads, like we actually build potentially software solutions and software services that help people accomplish more secure ways of doing things. Um, Netflix has done this. I sometimes don't like invoking Netflix because then people do the whole like, but what about a real business? Other businesses have done it too. But I do think Netflix's Wally framework is a great example where they basically standardize how you do like auth and um, logging and a few other things in one. So developers just don't have to think about it. That's a great example. Like they're actually creating libraries for the devs to just say, come grab this and here's your, here's your auth module. Essentially. Yeah. It's very much like standardized components, um, which I think is important because we don't want people rolling their own auth. Yeah. 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 There's no need. So here's, here's one um, pre-shaped, pre-formed and pre-vetted. Precisely. Exactly. Um, And that way, when you have to make updates, it's in one place. And of course, there will always be exceptions, but it means you're limiting the exceptions, which means you have more time to do other stuff too, is the security team. So this chapter basically walks through, okay, we want to treat security as a product. How do we do that? So it's drawing very much on some of my product background, um, talking about, you know, what are user problems? How do we define them? Um, How do we inform solutions? So I introduced the ice cream cone hierarchy of security solutions, which is a ton of fun. Um, And The metaphor is basically like, okay, we want to scoop a bunch of resilience ice cream in this cone. The biggest part of the cone is essentially security by design. How do we eliminate hazards by design? Then it's how do we reduce hazardous methods and materials, again, like C code or, um, you know, any sort of method that could be considered unsafe. Like, how do we reduce those by design? Um, Something like sandboxing is a good example of this kind of by design principle where there are just certain things that can't happen. Immutability is another good example. After that, we have um, security or safety devices. Those are very much things that might block. They're still bolt-ons, but they at least take some sort of action. Then we get down to um, warning systems. They just warn us, but it requires a human to take action. Then finally, at the very flimsy base of the ice cream cone, where you can barely have like a drip of ice cream, we have administrative controls. That's much more of the like, you shall do this thing and it's bequeathed to you on a tablet from the mountain and whatever else and things like training. And if you look at the cone, it's basically how much you should rely on the solution decreases as your dependence on a human taking action or a human behaving in the quote unquote right way increases. Now, it's interesting. You and I both have a product background and that ice cream cone model is very informed by that product perspective is kind of kind of what I'm hearing. Right. And what's interesting is I had a strong services background back in the day as well. And this even resonates with that services model, right? Because, you know, this isn't just sound product design principle. This is also services catalog almost. So you definitely think of it that way. Yeah. yeah. I, I like that. I like that overlay. I mean, I think because at the end of the day, what you're trying to say is we're designing it well, we're designing it once, we're designing it to be usable, and we're making it available to you, the rest of the business, i.e. the devs. Here you go. Have some ice cream, right? Precisely. And a key thing is you don't want to just force it. I give the analogy of like, if there is some sort of company in the market that releases a product and forces their users to use it, even if the users hate doing it, like we would consider that a pretty significant market distortion be like, that's not a good company. So I think we need to think about the security team or a platform engineering team similar is 
we want to encourage adoption, we should absolutely have adoption as a success metric. And I talk a little bit about both how to implement and ensure, uh, grease the wheels of adoption, so to speak, as well as how to measure success. Yeah, that's that's back to that that services model, a services catalog. You're constantly monitoring to see why isn't anybody choosing item 14 off the menu ever? Answer is that item must suck for some reason. And let's go look at it, right? So, all right, now we get to chapter eight, which is security chaos experiments. And I'm guessing this is where the fun all happened. It's where a lot of the fun happens. This is also a very practical chapter. There's a lot of almost like philosophy woven throughout. I kind of hope that people would start thinking about resilience in their own personal lives and other things they do. That was my part of my ambition. Yeah, you, you kick off with a quote from Faust, do you not? I, I do. I think I'm probably the only software slash security book that has Faust quotes as well as Virginia Woolf and Robert Bolliano and all all sorts of other literary there, Maya Angelou. Um, so I've tried to keep it spicy. There's also a lot of Jurassic Park references for something a little more every day. Um, but this chapter, very practical. So it's very much in the weeds of like, okay, you're sold on like chaos experimentation. Resilience stress testing is great. How do you implement it in practice? So we start with some lessons learned from early adopters, including no, you do not have to start by testing or experimenting in production. That is a myth. And it's never been about breaking things in production. It's always been about the goal of fixing things in production. So that's huge misconception. So we clear that up and talk about a few other lessons learned. Then we dig into how do we set up experiments for success? It's a lot of, like you said, the cultural thing, fostering consensus, like getting people's buy-in, making sure everything's documented appropriately. And then it's developing hypotheses because really security chaos experimentation is just the scientific method in action. So you develop hypotheses, you can leverage things like decision trees for those. It draws on chapter two pretty heavily. And then honestly, just writing the code for the experiment is um, not the hardest part. A lot of it is, again, like making sure that you notify people, conducting it really like any other sort of software release, right? You can actually, I feel like we have to name drop generative AI at some point. Uh, so <laughs> ChatGPT is actually pretty good at generating chaos experiments, although I feel a little like dirty saying it. So um, if you're stuck on like, okay, how do I actually write the code? There are tons of examples online that are open source, but you can also use ChatGPT if you want to feel super cool. Then from there, a lot of it goes into how do you analyze the resulting evidence? Obviously, you want part of the, pre, the pre-planning phase is how are you going to collect that evidence? Then you analyze it, um, and then you make sure that those kind of insights are disseminated, and you work ideally collaboratively to understand, okay, what is this experimental evidence telling us? How did our mental models deviate from reality? What can we learn from this to improve system designer, operationer, like you said, process. Um, so it's that really elegant feedback loop that's super powerful. There's also a brief mention of game days, which are a more manual chaos experiment that you can use to start just to, again, get a little more comfortable with it too. I like that. I like that a lot. I've I've got this very silly metaphor that's going to barely tie to this, but forgive me, I'm going to share my silly story anyway. I like to think of stupid as a tangible substance. Like somebody can walk into the room with a giant box of stupid. And if you engage them too much, some of it rubs off on you. And now you're leaving the room with some stupid on you, right? Extend that metaphor to systems, not just people, but to systems. I'm always asking myself, if I were a bad guy and I did X, but I also ask myself, what if somebody poured a giant box of stupid right here? 
What if someone poured a giant box of stupid right there? What if the whole system got rolled in stupid somehow overnight? And you ask yourself, because it, it's, it's useful to me because you're not just hypothesizing malicious actors. You're hypothesizing the realities of any complex system, which is, you know, I designed it to do X, but, the, you know, why is this screen door flopping back and forth instead of shutting? Or, you know, whatever it might be, right? So, so I, like to, I like to think of stupid as a tangible substance that can infect systems. <laughs> I love that. And I will definitely be thinking about that going forward. Cause you're right. Like a lot of what we're concerned about, I guess, is like that, that stupid, I'm now thinking of it at like Nickelodeon slime. Or yeah, 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 exactly. Like exactly. And once it's yeah. in there, it, boy, it trickles through, it soaks into all the parts. I and can pieces. only imagine how difficult it is to get out of clothes and stuff. Um, so yeah, actually the chapter closes with a bunch of examples of like here are kind of adverse conditions you can inject. Some of them you can see like it's directly attack related, but there's so much overlap with just like stuff we don't want. Either way, like I always say, memory corruption, what is healthy memory corruption? Like, it doesn't matter if it's an attacker or otherwise, like no one wants memory corruption. It's just, it's stuff we don't want. It's part of those, like throughout the book, we talk about the baffling interactions, those like surprises we don't like. Yeah, we don't want any sort of baffling interactions, whether they're caused by an attacker or otherwise. Exactly. So I love, exactly. I love the stupid box. Exactly. I will remember Somebody that. Somebody can pour a box of stupid. And it's not even a somebody. Stupid creeps in on its own, right? It's almost like a force of nature that you have to keep at bay. Oh no, here comes yeah, the stupid. Complex system. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And complex systems, um, you know, we say that failure is inevitable, but it's also that failure is happening all the time. It's just part of, part of how complex systems work. That's why I use the example of Jurassic Park because it's like dinosaurs are going to do dinosaur things. Things are going to go wrong. And yep. it's the same thing with our software. Companies who design well, uh, physical products for the U.S. military, uh, there's a running gag about making it marine proof. And what does it take to be marine proof, right? And and a friend of mine was talking about a, it was like a robotic drone type thing. This was probably 10, 15 years ago. So not not flying, non-flying robotic drone type thing. And they had to literally do boatloads of research with how many screws to put in there to hold it together. Because when it was issued to the Marines who were told, don't take this thing apart, the first thing they did was start unscrewing it and trying to take it apart. And they realized that at 32 screws, everybody would give up and wouldn't take it apart. And so all future units shipped with 32 screws like that's just a snippet of it, right? Like that, to me, that's, that, that's one of those beginning mindsets of how we, how we get where we're going with all this. And it shows that you need a deep understanding of how the user will behave. And that is one of my biggest gripes. And I think we talked about on the very first show is just so much of cybersecurity isn't working for us because we don't understand how the humans behave. And we try to force their behavior to change rather than changing the design to like you said in that example, like to match their behavior and meet their behavior. Meet them where they live, right? Meet them where they Precisely. live. So, all right, we're finally down to chapter nine, which is the case studies. This is the bit that Aaron uh, really dove on, right? Yes. Yeah. So the, the case studies are wide ranging. Um, most of them talk about how they do chaos experimentation practice. I love Aaron's case study from United Health Group in particular, because it deals with a firewall and it matches perfectly with I think it's Anchorman 2, the 60% of the time it works every time. So with the experiment, it turns out they injected a misconfigured port and they expected the firewall to detect it, like block it and alert on it. 60% of the time, and it's actually 60%, the firewall did that, but then the other 40% of the time it didn't. But what they did see, and that, by the way, that was a huge violation of their mental model because that's what a firewall is supposed to do. Right. Yeah, a firewall is supposed to be a constant in a network map, right? Exactly. Exactly. But what they found is that the commodity cloud configuration management tool caught the change and alerted on it. And it was, they didn't expect it. It was like a baffling interaction in a really good way. Um, but it meant that they could actually, again, adjust design. They could make sure that in 
for instance, things like playbooks that people were like, well, you need to also be paying attention to this other tool. Like it was very informative um, and especially helpful. And again, aligning that mental model of the system with reality. So I love that example, not just because of the 60% of the time it works every time, but just about how our most basic security controls, like have we actually verified that they're working as we expect? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Kelly, this is, this is phenomenal. I got to finish this book. I'm going to try to get me a vacation soon here so I can just hide out and read because all the skimming and flipping through and, and, and sniffing around I've done so far, it's amazing. It's, and it's, as I expected, it's dense. There's, you know, just for my readers, there's a lot of content packed in these pages. Uh, so be prepared. You're going to, you're going to be exercising your brain. Um, but I expect no yes. less from Kelly. Uh, she's going to, she's going to challenge the status quo. She's going to stimulate thought. You're going to walk away smarter. I can guarantee it. It took me nine months to write. So I like to send you reading like my, my baby and I like to think my baby's smart. So hopefully you'll learn some things. There we go. The smart baby. That'll be the, the sequel. Security Chaos Engineering, yes. <laughs> The Smart Baby. All right. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch and sharing all this with us. Uh, thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.